the matter? I was sure she'd notice. Notice what? The rope, of course. Brandon, we've got to hide it. Why? Why? Yes, why? It's only a piece of rope, Philip, an ordinary household article. Why hide it? Belongs in the kitchen drawer. In 1948, Alfred Hitchcock was struggling under the Hayes Code studio constraints and longed to rid himself of producers and meddling executives, achieving that nirvana, creative control. It was a long, winding road to get to this point. From a relatively lowly background, as far as film jobs are concerned, after doing a few years as a title card designer, Hitchcock burst onto the silent film scene in 1925. His first successful film, The Lodger, was a Jack the Ripper-like thriller, which has continued to inspire the thriller genre even now. From then on, Hitchcock was off to the races. In the beginning, the first British phase of Hitchcock's career, he worked on a parallel track to the American cinema in Hollywood. His 1929 thriller Blackmail, following two years after the jazz singer amazed American audiences, was the first British talk he ever made. Now, uh, Miss Andra, you asked me to let you hear your voice on the talking picture. <laughs> but Hitch, you mustn't do that. Why not? Well, because I can speak well. Do you realize the squad van will be here any moment? No, really. Oh, my God, I'm terribly frightened. Why? Have you been a bad woman or something? Well, not just bad, but... Uh... But you've slept with men. Oh, no! You have not come here. Stand in your place. Otherwise, it will not come out right. Other Hitchcock films, like The 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes, and Sabotage, are still some of the best-ranked British films ever created. However, Hollywood was where the action was, and David O. Selznick began lobbying for Hitchcock to join him in America. 1940 began Hitchcock's American second phase with Rebecca, Suspicion, Shadow of a Doubt, and Notorious. No, 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 notorious. Hitchcock had a long love affair with California and his 200-acre Cornwall ranch in the Scotts Valley. He primarily lived in Bel Air, where he lived for the rest of his life, and finally passed away peacefully. By 1948, Hitchcock was struggling under the studio constraints in Hollywood and was getting restless. He wanted full creative control and had become bored of a Hollywood that filmed in an extremely traditional style. So he aimed to show what he could do as one of America's most talented and bold filmmakers. The result was 1948's Rope, a commercial failure but a technical masterpiece. Brandon! What the devil? Don't you have any more sense than What is it? Go on, yank it out. I can't. If Mrs. Wilson were here, she'd yank it out for you. A stupid display like that in front of somebody else will be just as good as a confession. Now, take these and get a hold of yourself. If you let me keep the light on before as I'd wanted, I would have seen... All them. right! You're perfect. We have to be, Philip. We agreed there was only one crime either of us could commit. The crime of making a mistake. The meta-commentary of Hitchcock's adaptation of the 1929 play Rope's End is fascinating. In the movie, two brilliant young rich boys, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan, decide to plan and commit the perfect, most immaculate murder. They kill their friend David in the first scene and hide the body in a giant chest. The murder is meant to be technically perfect, clean, and highly impressive. They got the idea from their former prep school housemaster, Rupert, who talks about murder honestly all the time. Careful application of the trigger finger on a pair of seats in the first row is yours for the shooting. 
And have you had any difficulty in getting into our velvet rope restaurant? Frightful. A very simple matter. A flick of the knife, madame. And if you'll kindly step this way, or no, a step over the head waiter's body. By committing the murder, Brandon and Philip want to show that they are the elite few. Impressing their former housemaster telepathically, I guess, they don't really think that part through. The few are those men of such intellectual and cultural superiority that they're above the traditional moral concepts. Good and evil, right and wrong, were invented for the ordinary average man, the inferior man, because he needs them. And obviously you agree with Nietzsche in his theory of the Superman. Yes, I do. So did Hitler. Hitler was a, a paranoid savage. His supermen, all fascist supermen, were brainless murderers. I'd hang anywhere left. But then you see, I'd hang them first for being stupid. In fact, they set it up so that only through getting caught can Rupert ever really find out. How? I mean, suppose you or I... How would you get David out of the way? Now, you're much better at this sort of thing than I am. No, but what would you do if you were I? After the murder, they plan and execute a house party where the family and friends of their deceased classmate will unknowingly eat dinner off the chest. This obsession with technical detail and the ambition behind the murder are probably reminiscent of Hitchcock's thoughts about his own career. He longed to be the elite few, given creative control and able to lord that over the many constrained filmmakers in Hollywood. This film is dripping with queer subtext. In the play, these are two gay lovers who commit a murder. And in the movie, it's hinted at, sometimes just as clumsily as Brandon and Phillips hints about the murder. We've killed for the sake of danger and for the sake of killing. We're alive, truly and wonderfully alive. Even champagne isn't equal to us or the occasion. I'll take it though. You're not really frightened anymore, are you, Philip? You can't have fear, you know, neither of us can. That's the difference between us and the ordinary man, Philip. They talk about committing the perfect crime, but nobody does it. Nobody commits a murder Here. just for the experiment of committing it. Nobody except us. Our guest tonight, Matt Baum, who makes video essays about queer culture and history, has an excellent video essay called The Secret Gay Love Affair Behind Alfred Hitchcock's Rope that I suggest you check out. The film is famous for how Hitchcock filmed it, to look like one continuous scene playing out in real time with no cuts. It was a madhouse, you know, it was just crazy. But there's something else that makes it an even more audacious movie, which is the unstated fact that its main characters are a gay couple. What is extraordinary about it is its treatment of homosexuality. Slipping queer characters past film censors in the 1940s was no easy task. And in fact, they nearly didn't get away with it. And it was marked in big blue pencil. Homosexual, out, out, out. And what Hitchcock didn't know, at least not at first, is that the writer of the film was secretly having an affair with the leading man. Hitchcock imagined that sneaking the queer subtext past clumsy censors would be the type of achievement that he could lord over the many. But more than that, the film's techniques utilized by Hitchcock here are absolutely masterful. The whole thing, although this isn't really true, is filmed as though one continuous shot without cuts or breaks. The point is to show the story in real time, something that was definitely not attempted in mainstream Hollywood. This is largely done by keeping the whole story contained in Brandon and Phillips' apartment. The characters do go in and out, but we do not, left to watch the action transpire in the rooms. The apartment was a singular set with removable walls, and the camera often was left to do 10-minute takes without cutting. The microphone and camera were on wheels and could move throughout the set. Other directors frequently utilize long takes, but they were always interspersed with shorter cuts. There are no shortcuts in rope. Jimmy Stort plays Rupert, the former headmaster who is now a philosophy publisher. How do you do? Hello, John. Oh, Miss Walker. 
How'd you know? Brandon spoken of you. Did he do me justice? Do you deserve justice? The Rupert character in the play was meant to also be a foppish, effeminate gay character, having connected with the boys through that. Now, there's nothing explicitly gay in the text of Rope's End, but Hamilton himself acknowledged that his dialogue conveyed homosexual subtext, and that certain parts were, in his words, really cut out for a pansy. His dialogue suggests a very close relationship, and his description of their friend who turns them in is foppish, exquisite, and verges on effeminacy, clearly patterned on Oscar Wilde. Not only that, but as the play was performed over the next few years, the queer subtext was clear to audiences. Reviewers openly described the killers as homosexuals and perverts who commit a sexual crime. However, Jimmy Stewart can't play feminine, and he becomes more misanthropic and mercurial of a character. But I don't want to fence anymore. What are you going to do? I don't want to, but I'm going to look inside that chest. Are you crazy? I hope so. With all my heart, I hope I'm crazy. Uh, Rupert, this has nothing to do with you. It got to, Don't. Uh, Rupert. Got to look inside that chest. All right. Rope, a technical exercise first and foremost, flopped and did not bring Hitchcock the creative acclaim he craved. However, it has been fully rehabilitated and is now definitely understood for the technical masterpiece that it is. There must have been something deep inside you from the very start that let you do this thing. But there's always been something deep inside me that would never let me do it. And would never let me be a party to it now. What do you mean? I mean that tonight you've made me ashamed of every concept I ever had of superior or inferior beings. Anyway, before I introduce the panel, please like this video and subscribe to the Moving Night Extravaganza YouTube channel. Hit that bell to get notified whenever we're streaming. Also, we are now monetized, so if you have any pressing questions during this live stream, send us a super chat, which helps me keep the show running, and which I am obligated by international law, human rights law, to answer. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash movie night extra. All of our after parties are on there forever. Okay, let me introduce the panel. Conan Neutron, host of Britonic Reversal, co-host of Movie Night Extravaganza, and frontman for Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends, neutronfriends.bandcamp.com. Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends has a new split LP with Lung, Adult Prom, available now on Bandcamp. J. Andrew World, illustrator, book cover artist, artist for Give Them an Argument, co-host for Movie Night Extravaganza, and Bad Takes. Christina Oaks, this Barbie is streaming on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash Cosmopolitics. Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Cosmopolitics. Send her some subs on Twitch. Matt Baum is a writer, storyteller, and video essayist, making videos about pop culture from a queer perspective, including his video on Rope, the secret gay love affair behind Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. His YouTube channel playlist is Matt Baum's Culture Cruise. I, of course, am your sexually ambiguous Harvard-educated rogue and one of the superior few movie podcasters and murderers, Forrest Miller. Let's go, Brandon. Well done. Of course, the part of Christine Oaks will once again be portrayed by the Wolfman with a guitar tonight because she's not going to be joining us. Uh, Matt Baum, welcome to the show, man. Appreciate it. Right, thank you so much for having me. I, I hope it's okay that I use some of your uh, video essay, which I really enjoyed. It's an excellent video essay for anyone uh, to, you know, this off and watch that instead or whatever <laughs> or watch it after whichever one um no I, I i really liked it so i was happy that i could include it in the intro uh in, in pieces fantastic well i'm glad uh, yeah i'm glad you enjoyed it 
it's it's wild because I feel like uh, for for me, uh, Andy, you're muted. Uh, the I, I saw Rope like pretty early on. Like it actually was the second Hitchcock movie that I saw, which I know was relatively atypical. And it was shown to me under the auspices of check out what you can do mechanically with filming, uh, you know, from a cinematography standpoint, like the long shot stuff, uh, which was mind blowing. And at the time I was like 15 and I was like, are they gay? <laughs> and you have to understand, I did not grow up in like in a big city or anything. Like it was not like a, a educated area, but I did have lots of queer friends. And like I, it was, that was the thing I picked up immediately, uh, rather than like, and then like it had to be showed me like, look, like the only time you see the breaks, <laughs> yeah, in the nineteen forties, exactly, is is like you know like when you basically like change the film canisters and whatnot, and I was like, oh, that's amazing, that's that's really cool, that's really interesting. It's almost like looking into an aquarium too, because they have to have the actors go in front of the camera lens, so right. it's like uh, it's like you're almost watching like an aquarium, and then sometimes the fish will just like you know hit the glass right in front of you, and then you're like. Huh. This is well, this is an oddly, uh, you know, an oddly clumsy uh, actor they have there. I guess they just kept this in. But then you think about it, you're like, oh no, wait, like that's the only way that they can actually get it to cut, except for the time that the camera right. goes down into the chest, and then we're in the chest for a second, pretty much, and then back up again. And Which is totally sneaky and has been reused multiple times. I, we talked about this, Forrest, you and I, on uh, when we did the player. We talked about the that homage uh, long shot that's actually an homage of a touch of evil. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like th that trick was like literally right here, this film. Well, trick. people love doing it with car trunks now, right? <laughs> like you'll go into yeah. the car trunk and then they'll pull open the car trunk and you'll be looking from the trunk as if you're the person in the trunk, like, uh, Reservoir Dogs did it and stuff like that. Yeah, but but it's been internalized as like a like a, a cinema methodology. I know I uh, first became aware of this because of the X Files. Because um, remember they did an episode where they wanted to do one long take, despite commercial breaks. There you go. There you go. And then, then that you know like there's the whole world of uh, you know there was. Um, uh, 24, of course, is probably the most well-known, but there was, like, all the... I, well, I can't remember. The, the, there was a film that did that beforehand. It's fine. But, like, the whole real-time phenomenon of, like, filming things in real time and so on and so on, without it even necessarily being, like, a stage play sort of deal. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's a rich history for it. Uh, so, Matt, how did... How did uh, and apologies if this is in your YouTube thing. I don't actually watch YouTube stuff that much, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how did Rope come to your attention? because i know you that's a good like question a good yeah i'm not really sure it's it's one of those um hitchcock movies that's kind of um not on the a tier so it's sort of one of those like that's always yeah. sort of swirling in the background like oh i might i ought to get around to watching that you know it's not psycho or the bird it's it's not even marnie uh and yet the the name kept bubbling up for me because a lot of the work that i do um with my youtube videos is about uh, iconic movies and TV shows, uh, particularly those who have, you know, the, the basically the story of, of how those things were made, um, particularly when there's sort of some sort of queer uh, perspective on them and some queer aspect to their making. Um, and like you mentioned, because those guys have uh, just sort of a vibe between them, obviously there's nothing that they say at any point. They're never like, you know, they never talk about their their sexual encounters and they never yeah. kiss or anything like that, but they have this incredible chemistry that is absolutely there intentionally. Um, it was, you know, everyone on the set knew what they were doing and, and was doing it on purpose. 
Anyway, right. it's just something that I've always been aware of. It's you know one of those movies I, I at some point I got to talk about. And so as I started looking into it um, and learning more about the guys who made it, you know, those main actors, um, the screenwriter, Arthur Lawrence, and the completely secret relationship that he was having with one of the actors uh, and what happened with their relationship following the movie. Um, really incredible story. And, you know, not to mention how it, it completely turned uh, Hitchcock's career around, getting out under the thumb of uh, David O. Selznick at the time. So... Uh, really incredible movie, um, you know, from before, during and after, uh, right up until 2011 or so, when uh, both uh, Farley Granger and Arthur Lawrence both passed away. You know, their relationship went through a lot of different changes from the, you know, over the course of 1949 to 2011. Uh, it's really decades long um, romance to friendship to estrangement to um, a new understanding, let's say, of each other. Uh, David O. Selznick also, um, after the uh, Benzedrine addiction, stopped being quirky and started being something that gets written about in every like uh, film school book or whatever. That's like, right. yeah, this guy was fucking geeked out of his mind the entire time he was, he was doing <laughs> cinema. I, I like that you include that uh, little clip of his secretary talking about like how um, sometimes when they had to work late, she'd be like, give me one of those Benzedrine and would just pop it and just keep yeah, writing yeah. all night. And it's like damn dude <laughs> yeah you, you think that started with this generation it did not uh no i mean yeah. I, I i definitely not but it, you, I, I don't know benzedrine is one of those things that you don't because now it's just an inhaler so you don't really think about it being like the the most abused fucking substance in the 1920s to 1940s well it's also what i was going with that was that it's it's, it's wild what wasn't wasn't included in the code right because like like being like pre-code stuff it, it, it's like oh yeah Every like like in the like in the intro. Okay, everybody has like a slightest clue that wasn't like some you know some cornpone hick from Iowa or something. It's like oh yeah, well clearly they're a gay couple, duh. But like by the same token, it's it's like while that was verboten, it's you know you have people like <laughs> get their 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 uh, pick me up pills all the time. It's like, yeah, what do you think that is exactly? <laughs> I I love though I love when it starts getting like really heavy handed. In the very like in the first couple scenes and they're just finger yeah. like you know what i mean like putting their hands all over the champagne bottle before eventually popping it and it's like that is some classic fucking subtext like uh you don't yes you think yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <Ford was laughs> written a book on that <laughs> um, but it's also notable and just real quick i wanted to i was thinking about it last night rewatching this because it's been a long time i don't i mean I, you don't get rear window without a rope like you, you like without rope you don't get what we know of as rear window period. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, although the film was not as successful as they were hoping it would be, it was a great opportunity for Hitchcock to refine his technique when it comes to those long takes. I mean, he's always been yeah. really great at choreographing a camera and I think rope really shows off um, his skill. I, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project right now about psycho and Oh, there are some incredible camera moves in that one. Um, and also I would say dial in for murder has some great camera moves as well, which yep. is particularly challenging because they're shooting in 3d and they do some, you know, I, I use the word choreography because it really feels like a dance. It's so um, yeah. deliberate and organized uh, by the time he gets to psycho uh, Hitchcock was telling his actors, I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about motivation and performance and characters. You know, that's your job. You're the actor. I'm just going to tell you if you're standing in the wrong place. Uh, yeah. Follow your mark and try not to trip on the furniture. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Which was that, that famous Jimmy Stewart quote where he said, uh, the only thing that's been rehearsed is the camera. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 But because uh, the blocking and like people weren't again, if you, if you were doing Broadway, 
It's all about yeah. blocking, right? But yeah. like it wasn't necessarily something that was obsessed upon in, in filmmaking because the unless idea you're doing was, something like I mean today I guess with like Black Swan or something like that. That's well, like, what I was gonna say, except for musicals, of... <laughs> musicals like it absolutely was, but like just for you know, and, and of course fight choreography. But I, I think sure. that even even something like uh, Vertigo, right? For Hitchcock to get the courage to be able to like keep his yeah. to keep uh, entire scenes where Jimmy starts driving in real time yeah. or walking like down a really long hallway and to keep it going in real time and to not be afraid to uh, follow him down that hallway or like to keep the camera moving even if nobody's in the shot so it's almost like a painting to keep the camera moving. I feel like you have to go through something like this where you're doing these insanely long, um, uh, you know, these these. Uh, like without cutting, right? These these insane these very long patient, tapes. long yeah, shots. Because... Yeah, well, North by Northwest too. I mean, I th- I don't I think you're right. I think you don't get Vertigo. I don't think you don't get. Uh, I think you don't get Psycho. I th- don't think you get North by Northwest. Like, like all of like you think of like you know we talk about this being like you know not considered like the A tier of Hitchcock's movies by uh, popular consensus. Like like you don't get any of the A tier without this film though. That's what's nuts. Like yeah, it's really so, predicted yeah. all of those. Um, yeah. This was the end of a bit of a rocky period. Well, it wasn't quite the end. It was coming up on the end of a rocky period. And then coming out of this is when we get, you know, everything from, you know, I think we had one more. We might have that, like the paradigm case or one of those. Um, But then we start getting into the much more, you know, we get Rebecca and, uh, you know, uh, Strangers on a Train. and Strangers on a Train. Actually, I think Rebecca was just before. But, um, you know, the the ones that are the the best remembered uh, are coming coming up in the next decade, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I had this book as a kid, right? I really liked Alfred Hitchcock. I had this, uh, the films of Alfred Hitchcock and and a lot of it's just glossy photographs of his sets and like uh, his camera work and stuff. And it goes like, you know, movie by movie. It kind of, it it obsesses over the technical aspect of, um, of rope, but like kind of glosses over like the plot of it. But that's the first, I think I ever got interested in ever, like ever watching this movie because uh, they had like a full glossy picture in black and white of the set and the, the entirety of it and how long it actually was. And I remember as a kid being like really wowed and being like, wow, that's, it's like technically, I don't know if this is a movie that I'd want to watch for like the plot because it doesn't really explain what the plot is, but it's a tech, it looks like a technical uh, feat really like. And yeah. the plot's good. The plot, yeah, the plot is good. It just is, it, it it's something where the technical achievement was so unique and interesting and like unseen really at that point, especially for uh, something like this, which is like, you know, a bit of a mystery thriller. Although the mystery is doubly hilarious because you see them do the murder at the beginning. It, at it the very beginning. Like, like this, this is <laughs> basically Columbo, you know, and uh, Jimmy Stewart's Columbo, I guess. Which that wasn't written into the script. Uh, originally, like they didn't, you know, the screenwriters didn't think, uh, like Arthur Lorenz or whatever, didn't think that it was uh, even good that they showed the murder at the beginning. It kind of, Hitchcock just kind of did it and then said, eh, I'm going to keep it in because they thought that the mystery, you know, actually writing the screenplay for it yeah. was going to be whether or not there ever actually was a body in the trunk. And you're questioning the entire time, like, is there a body in here? Is there not? And then maybe at the end, you see like a glimpse of something, but like, um, but that's Hitchcock. what makes it that that's what started up like, that's what makes it unique right like that's what makes it like unlike so many other things of its time which were you know good thrillers but it's like no this is this is not like your traditional thriller like the whole thing is like you know watching like brandon and philip just sort of like are they gonna get busted are they not like, are old, they, is one of them just old, gonna uh, school headmaster too right right exactly like <laughs> Is somebody, not to name any names, going to get too wasted and say the wrong thing? Yeah, probably. This is mm-hmm. what it seems like, you know? So I that's also, the tension. The tension is, is, like, if they get discovered, actually, it almost makes you an accessory to the murder, which, of course, is the thing that Hitchcock absolutely love, you know, playing with. 
I, I also I love the fact that uh, instead of kind of having um, like the the professor, I guess, or the headmaster guy, right? Like as um, almost like a, a, a drag mom for them. Like, you know what I mean? Like a, a force that kind of brings them into like a queer lifestyle and kind of acts as like a, a parent almost to them because of Jimmy Stewart's, um, you know, specific style of acting. He really leans hard on the I'm a guy that talks about murder all the time to kids. Like that's yeah. his. <laughs> so like in every scene, he's just like, well, I, I think that, you know, uh, there's lots of uh, inferior people that could just be killed off. And it's like, by the end of it, you're like, dude, you talked them into this. Like this, yeah, like, yeah. you're just a weird guy that's in like in another scene, right? Like that could be uh, queer subtext, but isn't because of Jimmy Stewart. Uh, he's like, oh, well, he used to tell him all kinds of weird things. And, you know, like if it was a more um, effeminate, I guess, kind of character, you'd think, oh, well, that means that, you know, some, like he, he's always kind of um, making past at them because of Jimmy Stewart. You're like, no, he's always talking to them about like murder. Like that's his that's his big thing. It's kind I of guess. his deal. Sort of known for <laughs> I think that actually, you know, Jimmy Stewart's um, choices with that character, I think, undermine it a bit um, as it's described mm. in the play. Uh, that Rupert character is a poet and um, somebody who kind of operates in the realm of theory and ideas without ever really um, exploring the practical considerations is a little bit more, um, I don't want to call him ephemeral exactly, but it's a character, I, I think, as Patrick, um, uh, as Patrick, was it Wilson? I keep forgetting his name, Hamilton. As Patrick Hamilton wrote him, um, I think the Rupert character, it makes sense that he would be disinterested in the um, practical applications of ideas versus just the the poetic, um, I don't know, the, the the coming up with with outrageous thoughts, uh, you know, kind of patterning him on um, Oscar Wilde. And then the way that Jimmy Stewart plays him, he's such um, he's so much more of a, um, I don't know, a practical, I kind of hesitant to say American, but um, much more uh, down to earth uh, generally. And so <laughs> I think it comes off as very weird that that character never really considered, oh, wait, there might be a downside to this <laughs> like thought experiment. It's really unclear, I think, to a viewer whether this whole Superman thing, this, you know, that there's some superior beings thing that the Rupert character espouses in the film. Is he only ever just believing that? Is he only ever saying that as a joke? Or does does he ever, does he actually believe that? Because sometimes it seems like he's right. just kidding around, never, never really meant it. Yeah, I mean, I think in every scene, it seems like he's kind of kidding around, uh, which is how... Jimmy Stewart ends up. Your Honor, in my playing. defense, I was just goofing around. Yeah, I, I, Your Honor, I'm a silly little guy. What can I say? Um, but like, be, because it's Jimmy Stewart, right? Because he's like a weird mix of, uh, like, I, I guess down to earth is a good way of putting it, like, and charming yeah. at the same time, right? Like, he's able to just kind of uh, banter with everybody in the room, and everyone kind of just goes along with it. Which, like, I don't, but like, after after months of of this guy just talking about murder all the time, though, I feel like it would take a turn. Like maybe one night it's charming where he's like, Oh, just think about it. You, you could kill people who want theater tickets. And then you're like, Oh, that's kind of cute. And then, yeah. you know, like, but after like months of that, you might be like, dude, is he going to, does he kill homeless people? Which actually kind of <laughs> uh, opens up a question for me um, yeah. that I was thinking of like a, which will never be answered, but like if they had killed somebody like a homeless person, or if they had killed like a poor person that he didn't know, and he opens the trunk and it's someone he's never seen before. I don't know if his reaction is as horrified and as, uh, you know, visceral as, you know, as someone that they're friends with, that they know that he would have had an, as another uh, kid in his, uh, you know, that, that went to the prep school with them. 
I, and I, I don't know if yeah. I mean that's not like an important question. Yeah, like, I don't know that guy, so it has less impact. Like that kind of yeah. or like or or that really is like an inferior in my mind being that like you know like that's the guy in the street corner. I don't really care about yeah. that guy anyway. Like I don't know. So that was that was one question that I had because the character is so uh, mercurial and like uncertain in some ways. Well, and, and it's it, it also sorry anybody because it, it kind of lends into the whole conversation of the like oh well you know I don't agree with like the. The Ubermensch for on on these bases, but the, for these rules, I do. Where it's like, well, yeah, but you're still tacitly agreeing with like extermination of peoples, like so. Yeah, well, the, you're not really the off funniest, the hook there, bud. It's the funniest uh, kind of like. I, I guess you got to the right point for the wrong reasons. For like, completely I, the wrong reasons. Like, yeah, I'd exactly. kill all the Nazis. This, like, I guess that's the correct that's the correct answer. Yeah. But like, I don't think because they're stupid was the uh, the, the point yeah. that most people were looking for there. I think it's because they're evil. But like you're you're clearly the same kind of evil, but maybe you know the only way to defeat a bad Nazi is a good Nazi. I don't know. You could throw that out there as <laughs> as Brandon's defense. <laughs> I, I was let, gonna let say that, that. What's interesting too is like uh, you know the way people talk about um, uh, you know the victim in, in the film. It, it question begs the question. Uh, you know, it brings up the question of like, is he actually? Uh, you know, was he really deserving to be killed? Because um, remember, like, like uh, you know, their friend who's always like, oh, I have to study really hard because, you know, I'm not as smart as as the dead dude. Um, right. Yeah. You know, so it's yeah, like, like he would seem to fit their definition of a superior being along with them. Right. Like, because it's like, oh, well, yeah, superior being is someone that's smart and that's, uh, you know, in, in this realm, like the social class. It's, it's kind of the, the person that they pick to kill is the smartest, apparently among them and also of their social class. It does kind of um, like it, it does kind of bring up the question like if it was someone that wasn't like Jimmy Stewart's horrified reaction like he might just be like oh well that that, that that's a that's the guy from the street corner I don't I don't care yeah, about that yeah. I mean Jimmy Stewart probably not because it's Jimmy Stewart but no, yeah <laughs> he'd still be shooting the gun out the window <laughs> I got yeah, the, the it, it, it <laughs> does um, I think indict in general, the idea that um, anyone could be superior, you know, th that anyone is capable of making that determination. Because, you know, it, as we, it, it always happens that as soon as somebody starts talking about like some people are more valuable than others, yeah. by incredible coincidence, the most valuable people are invariably the group that that person belongs to. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, so, funny how that works out, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like the God question. Like uh, when people end up, end up describing God, it always kind of ends up reflecting them. They're like, oh, what does God look like when he's choosing, um, you know, the beings to be saved? And it's like, oh, like me, of course. Like I, yeah. I'm looking yeah, White that. beard, long hair. Yeah. <laughs> what an unbelievable coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, it turns out that uh, it's people with blue jackets and bolo ties. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Um, but, like, also, I think that it's an interesting thing after two world wars. This is the generation that isn't going to go to war in the same way, right? Like, they'll go to Korea, but, like, they're not going to go to a world war in this way. And they're not fighting for an ideology in the same sense. You know what I mean? Like, against this uh, world kind of evil force. I mean, you could say that the Cold War is its own kind of thing, but they're not sending the boys over there to kill uh, in the same ways. And so, like, in the beginning, when they say, you know, men usually die on the battlefield, like, that's kind of a true statement. The last two generations of men had been killed on the battlefield right before this. And it's like that instinct to kill is kind of something that's explored here uh, in, in, in a peacetime situation, I think, right? When society just goes back to normal after, like, two horribly traumatic events in a row. Right. Yeah, and I think it's really um, noteworthy that the script is written by a gay Jewish man, um, you know, who 
you know, is is belongs to uh, you know on on multiple axes uh, that were targeted by the last major uh, conflict. Yeah. Well, and it's again like it's it's crazy because it, it deserves to be engaged with on that level and uh, <laughs> movie podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's the that's the best, the highest tier of uh, existence. Doesn't get any better, frankly. Yes. Uh, but that's why that's why I'm always saying we got to kill political podcasters, you know, right, exactly, they're, they're exactly. the class of inferior. <laughs> but yeah, but like that type of that type of uh, engagement socially at the time, I mean, it, it's it's crazy to think about. Like, I mean, again, what you could get away with with the code, too, which, again, to watch this now, it's like, well, yeah, of course. But if you were like, you know, just like some average joe with a hat probably in the 1940s you know <laughs> i hey, assume they all had hats i'm an average joe i, I wear a hat <laughs> you know like it's it wouldn't necessarily be obvious but it would if it was something where you were immersed in the culture then you would see representation in a way that you is the only way you could get around it which which is just almost like to surreptitiously guide it in and so to speak phrasing but yeah <laughs> um, like and to do so in the auspices of like like almost like a reverse murder mystery where again you know at the outset who did it it's just the question of if they get away with it and why they did it in the first place which is i mean let's be clear one of our one of our main characters is sort of like a proto patrick bateman type right <laughs> i mean that's um, real or or in some ways uh kind of i i, I look at like dennis from it's always sunny where sure. uh, he's constantly trying to get off and he's like yeah. i'm just a guy who totally got off like that that seems like it's a a, a similar motivation to uh to what these care at least uh at least brandon right like um yeah. like yeah. like philip seems totally um horrified by what he's done and brandon well he, he has a more natural human reaction which is like <laughs> first of all immediate remorse for an action that cannot be taken cannot be taken back and also you know some degree of a moral culpability for his own uh, own sense of uh, what is right and what is wrong, and then that you know, his compared his compared to his partner who doesn't mean that. Just is like, nope, I'm 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 the most clever one there is. Like again, like the the I guess I can't really do a spoiler from a movie from 1948, but like when he's like uses the rope to tie up the books, where it's like, oh come on, dude, really? <laughs> <laughs> come on, man. But it's but it's so great in the terms of like you know, oh well, it's clear they're gonna get away clean on this, and then he just has to like push it like a little bit farther, and, yeah. and he can't well, he can't resist doing it. It's it's a temptation of it. They could have just taken the trunk out, and then nobody like no one would have even looked at them, yeah. right? Like I mean, I guess yeah, if you're gonna. Sure. <laughs> but, but like, no, but like what I'm saying is the whole, like the whole movie is different levels of how much can we push the situation to, yeah. because they, they almost want to get caught specifically by Rupert, I think, which is why they invite him. Like they want to see if what they did is good by uh boss daddy or whatever, which undercut by fucking Jimmy Stewart being Jimmy Stewart, I think. Cause like you never really, you don't get the, 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 the same boss daddy vibes that you would if it was, you know, played by a, a more um, ephemeral actor, I guess. Yeah, if it was like Robert Mitchum or something, I think you might buy it more, you know? Where, yeah. <laughs> like, Robert Mitchum, not the hunter Robert Mitchum I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Knuckle tattoos and everything. We yeah, him, like... We show him just... love and hate on his, uh, on <laughs> right. his knuckles, and you're like, you're like he's going he's gonna to be cool with this. Yeah, he's going to, like, charm <laughs> the woman with his, his speech about his knuckles. I, I think it's just if there's anything that sort of uh, and, and I, I like Jimmy Stewart a lot. And I like that this role is a very different kind of role for for him uh, at, at the time, too. But like also that is the one thing where it's sort of like you have to strain credulity a little bit to be like, oh, this guy's 
teaching this nihilism <laughs> in, his, in his class. I don't know, is he? Yeah. Like everybody, I, I, including yeah. Jimmy Stewart, felt that he was miscast. Yeah. But also, you know, you, you got to have a name. So, yeah. And who's at that point, who's heard of John Dahl and Farley Granger? And, you know, sure. the, the kids aren't coming out to see Constance Collier. <laughs> I mean, they, they wanted right, Cary right, Grant, yeah. and I could see Cary Grant kind of. Uh, oh, 100%. Off. Yeah. Cary Grant, yeah. 100%. Charming yeah. little wink. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And he's, you know, he just uh, sashays in. I like, I like that you that you included the in your um in your video essay with the one clip where he like runs in and he sashays into the room or whatever. Like, I can see that uh, Cary Grant charming the entire party and then being like, "Oh shit, you guys actually did the murder thing that I'm always talking about." I don't, I don't get, I don't get tied up in this whole in 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 the drama of the uh you know the uh, more of a big picture guy yeah. really yeah. <laughs> i could certainly see cary grant being a, a frivolous in the way that i think the play calls for uh that the and i think you know if you just read the screenplay i think the screenplay has the room for that character to be um to be a sillier man essentially a more frivolous person uh jimmy stewart just kind of disregards that that or, or chooses not to to go in that direction anyway i think Cary Grant, um, I, I imagine Montgomery Clift, if, if they had gone for Montgomery Clift. Uh, I'm thinking about other like closeted actors who they might have called on to play that role. Uh, you know, if Hitchcock really wanted to have like an all gay cast, Tony Perkins was a little too young at that point. So I don't know. I don't know who else yeah. who else they might have considered. Tab Hunter's still too young. So um, your your yeah. your menu of gay closeted uh, Hollywood <laughs> celebrities at that point was uh, yeah. not lengthy. Um, not so like today. This is from the so this is from the uh, the the Turner Classic Movies thing that you use a bunch of in the um in, in your video essay. But uh, I wanted to grab the part where they're talking about writing the screenplay, um, because I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting how many different hands this went through, which I think it had to because of the subtext and everything in it. But I showed him something that I'd written one day, and. Hitchcock just said, would you like to work on the next screenplay I'm going to do? It's based on Patrick Hamilton's play. It was a true story. And I got the play and I read it and I thought, I'd love to do this. So I would sit and we would hack out the scenes that he wanted to shoot. And we would find bridges for the stuff he didn't want to shoot. Some elements in the film followed the play, some did not. But then he brought in Arthur Lawrence to write the finished screenplay. And that was a general tendency he had. He would have a treatment written and he worked very closely with whoever was designing that treatment. And we would sit day after day after day in his garden in Bel Air and Hitch would produce a bottle of wine around noon. He was a great one for Flying you with liquid refreshment. And then he hires someone to take that treatment and do generally the dialogue. I've always thought it was uh, out of character for David to drink anything as, as corrupt as whiskey. Out of character for him to be murdered, too. <laughs> yes, wasn't it? Good Americans usually die young on the, on the battlefield, don't they? Well, the Davids of this world nearly occupy space, which is why he was the perfect victim for the perfect murder. Arthur is a very accomplished writer. He wrote the screenplay. I didn't. I just wrote the treatment. But at the time that that film was made, 
my name was perhaps somewhat better known than Arthur's was. Now Arthur Lawrence has got a much bigger reputation than I've got, and he's earned it. I had been working on the screenplay for The Snake Pit, which was getting a lot of attention in Hollywood. And I think that brought me to Hitch's attention. I think the real reason was he wanted a playwright, because this is essentially a play and done as a play. So he came to me. I liked the idea of working with him, and we got along very well. It was very easy, really. Rope really comes from an English play by Patrick Hamilton called Rope's End. And I thought it was going to be easier than it was to make an American. The trouble was when you translated the English dialogue, it became very homosexual, unintentionally. And also the class system. It's very different in England than here. So it called for more changes than I anticipated. Don't. Got to see if there's anything. I know. But not just yet. Let's stay this way for a minute. What was curious to me was rope is obviously about homosexuals. The word was never mentioned. Not by Hitch, not by anybody at Warner's where it was filmed. It was referred to as it. They were going to do a picture about it. And the actors were it. You frightened me. You always have. From that very first day in prep school. Part of your charm, I suppose. The picture was much more successful in Europe because I suppose in Europe they were used to it and we weren't here. And they didn't deny, but they never discussed that it was based on the Loeb Leopold case. They ignored it. I couldn't understand that. Two rich boys in a Chicago school decided to murder a third boy for the thrill of it. And I mentioned it, and everybody looked blank and went on with whatever we were talking about. But it obviously came from that. At that time, because of a thing called the Legion of Decency and the Catholic Church, they had a watchdog of censors. And you had to be careful. There were certain rules. If a man and a woman were on the same bed, one of them had to have his or her feet on the floor. A married couple could not sleep in the same bed. A woman couldn't ask a man for a divorce. The man had to say, I know you want a divorce. With rope, of course, you could never say that they were it. So there was no mention of it in the picture at all. And what happened with that picture was it was produced by Sidney Bernstein. He was very English and a great friend of Hitch's and an admirer of Hitch's. And when I finished the screenplay, he said, now, my boy, you have to make every sentence a gem. I said, I'm going to New York. You can make it a gem because I had been in Hollywood a little too long to suit me. So I went back to New York. When I came back, he had taken some of the dialogue from the original play and put it back in this. And it was full of my dear boy. Literally, my dear boy was marked in big blue pencil. Homosexual, out, out, out. So it had to be cleaned up from all those English remarks, which had nothing to do with anything, really. I wish we had him out of here. I wish it was somebody else. I, I got to say, every time I hear him talk about it, I just imagine like Tim Curry and Bill Sarsgaard, like... <laughs> You know, like complete clown makeup uh, in the center of the film. You know, it's a movie about it and it stars it. 
Yeah, no, we we got it. We yeah. got it. <laughs> so many um, remarkable details in those interviews, including that Sidney Bernstein was re rewriting the script, which is bananas. Uh, right. <laughs> and the producer stepping in to say, "Oh, I'm going to just do a little writing here on my own." I mean, yeah, yeah. Let, let time, me improve but, on this. Yeah. What a th yeah. I'd love to hear wow. what the WGA thinks of that today. Yeah, yeah, not exactly uh, something that is done often. Yeah, and I like that he, uh, I like that Arthur the Rancher or whatever decides like, oh, I'm gonna go to New York, and I'm like kind of pissed off about you know how uh, frustrated this is, and then the, you know the producers just sitting there changing everything and being like, we need to make yeah. this more British, more literary. We need, well, we need my the, dear boy to be back. <laughs> the, the idea of, of even doing. Um, uh, Filming plays in general started with Sidney Bernstein in the 30s, I want to say, as a way to export British culture. He saw it as a way to um, basically capture British culture and, you know, show it to a, a larger world. And so he presented it to Hitch as, you know, an opportunity. Right. Essentially, you know, I know you're bored, Alfred, <laughs> working in the <laughs> Hollywood system. I want to start a company with you. And uh, what would you think about shooting plays? And that's when Hitchcock is comes back with like, yes, yes, I would like to do that. And I want to do it with this with this play in particular, which I have to imagine was a little terrifying to Sydney. But um, <laughs> allegedly, according to Arthur, uh, Sydney was also um, romantically interested. I don't think involved, but romantically interested in Farley Granger. Um, yeah. I haven't seen that corroborated by anyone else, and I don't know that everything that Arthur says is as you know, it was many years ago. So who knows uh, exactly? How closely it hues to what was actually going on, but right, right. Uh, we weren't there. it's a fun we thing to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's also like uh, if he's kind of in a rivalry with him, changing his script, right? Like you, mm. you project all of the things that you you don't like about a guy onto like your romantic feelings for someone sure. too. To be like, so he changed my script, and he wants my boyfriend too. Like <laughs> this guy, this is... just one of those things would be enough, really. <laughs> yeah, movie. yeah. Where's that movie? There, there's not a person in Arthur Lawrence's life that was not at some point in conflict with him. He was right. uh, he was not a gentleman. I mean, that's like all the best playwrights and screenwriters, though, right? Like, I mean, Arthur Miller is a good example of someone that uh, was constantly in conflict with everybody, too. And yeah, is kind of like uh, the, the premier example of like a 20th century, uh, mid 20th century playwright. Um, sure. I don't think that is what made them great. But uh, yeah, I do think that there are. Um, aspects to a lot of the greats that uh, are in, in, unsavory. Yeah. Speaking of unsavory, how about that chicken cruelty, huh? That's, mm -hmm. I, I kind of forgot how heavily that factors in. And, <laughs> lots and of, it's, lots it's, of talking it's about smoking the chicken. Yeah, yeah. I felt like I was in high school. Too. It's like, <laughs> like, oh, choking the chicken. Like, yeah, and then yeah. Rupert's like, uh, I, I saw him choking the, chi the chicken too. And it's like <laughs> One of the great mysteries to that, something that I really tried to track down but wasn't able to, was the um, was that slang back then? At, at what point did, yeah. that become, did that become a reference? Maybe it's from that. Probably not. But um, yeah, yeah I don't know. It was. Yeah. Even yeah. if it wasn't recognized <laughs> slang, um, obviously – you know, it's just a, a visceral image that uh, I think could easily suggest sexuality. So whether it was slang or not, um, you know, it, it's still very suggestive. But I mean, also like pulling the rope, like kind of has, I think. Sexual oh, yeah. Jerk it out. Like it. The, yeah. pull it out, I think, is the line. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Come on. They literally, they literally turn everything into like everything they possibly can into subtext. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've been wallowing in Psycho a lot recently, and no, there's okay. so many lines in, in that movie that are hy hysterically ironic, um, you know, uh, when 
Norman Bates has a line early on. He says something like, mother is, uh, what's the word? She's not quite herself today. Yeah. It's such a <laughs> funny line. <laughs> <laughs> we we covered Psycho uh, and it was a great episode, but there's so much there. Like, I feel like we could do an entirely different episode and not like cover a single one of those. Same I episodes. could talk for hours about Psycho. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, getting back to the chicken choking, um, <laughs> key moment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, key, key moment in this, and it's well, it's sort of Co like okay. Co Conan, why why would you lie? Then? Oh. Hey, we, we we all we all saw you choking the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> it just escalates and escalates. I watched, and it's... Vertigo, I watched Vertigo, uh, Rear Window, and rewatched oh, this last night. So I'm like, Steve you're stuck in permanent me. Jimmy Stewart voice, aren't you? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, we're gonna need to reboot Forest, everybody. Uh, I think something that Hitch is really good at is, uh, yeah, you know, and this is kind of a gimme because it, it, it is easy to to do this well. But well, at least it's not <laughs> it's not hard to do it well. Uh, is when characters lose their cool. I think it's very very compelling. Uh, yeah. In his films, when characters freak out and, and lose control, and that that chicken moment where <laughs> when he loses loses control of himself, and then I'm thinking of you know the other one that comes to mind is the, if, in the Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, at the very end, I'm going to try to say this without spoiling too much. There's a character who reverses her um, allegiances and yeah. has a very exciting scream at the end of uh, Hitch's second The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, and I, she has, she screams the word no in a way that I, uh, I think is one of the highlights. There are two great screams in that movie, and I think that is one of them. Yeah, and it's it. it that works. was very oblique. <laughs> that, that that is skillfully oblique for, and by the way, for a movie that no one on this panel was born when it came out. Uh, you know, but it's. I think it's awesome because it's it's very well crafted. Like every moment serves a purpose in his in his films, right? And, and that's very much the case here. Like th this again, as much as we're we're joking about the modern slang for choking your chicken, right? Uh, that but it it serves a huge purpose here. It's like where he starts to break and where Jimmy Stewart's character is like, okay, something's up here. Like mm -hmm. I, this, this is where the like the first thread of the of the sweater is is is, is uh, unraveled and like it it kind of sets him on the path for that. Uh, yeah. I love those moments when you can see the gears turning um, yeah. and they, they haven't turned all the way, but, right, but right. the movement has begun. Yeah. I mean, another one is um, when he goes to get his hat and it's the wrong hat and he looks at the initials and it's, uh, you know, David's initials in the hat. And he's like, huh, like they, they said this guy hasn't been to the house in a while and his yeah. hat is literally yeah, here, like right his, here. His hat is here. <laughs> I can't quite recall, but I think that's one of the um, explicit cuts in the film. There's only a few, I think like three or four. Um, actual hard cuts that aren't disguised. And I think that's one where the camera travels very close into the hat and then there's a hard cut up to his face. Or maybe yeah. I have the order a little off there. But um, those those actual hard cuts really do draw attention to something significant just happened. Right, right. Yeah. It, well, they're used narratively, and that's what's so great. And also, yeah, hello to Mark Borchardt, the legendary Mark Borchardt in the chat, friend of the show. Uh, he digs those close cinematic adaptations of plays. That includes Rope, for sure. Uh, this would be a hell of a play to be a part of and probably was a hell of a movie set to be a part of, especially when you consider that granted it wasn't like how digital is now where you can just you know, do everything in bite-sized little bits. But like that is a lot of skill and a lot of things that just have to go your way or mm. everything's screwed. Oh yeah. God, what a nightmare to do those. The first, um, the, the first, I don't know in what order they shot. I don't know if they shot sequentially, but the first reel of the film, um, the first 10 minute long take uh, 
went great. Hitchcock tells a story about how it went great. And then they get to the end and everybody's like, oh, thank God, this is actually going to work. Everything's coming together. And the camera comes back into place and standing in the window is one of the electricians just standing there amongst (laughs) the miniature set of New York. Just a guy. And um, (laughs) he talked about that on uh, on Dick Cavett. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, I I grabbed the Dick Cavett uh, a couple minutes of that. But um, it's kind of funny that Dick Cavett's like, and you couldn't just write an electrician in? And he's like, no, I could not just write. <laughs> it is such awesome. a weird, like, this is a little bit of a tangent, but that Dick Cavett interview is so bizarre. Dick seems so uncomfortable and unhappy. And I don't know, maybe it's just the way he is. But um, the whole interview is so uncomfortable because um, Hitchcock has such a deadpan, wry, playful style yeah. that, and I think Dick can't quite tell if he's being fucked with or not. Uh, it's just very fun to watch. Oh, I, I love Dick this map. And Dick Cavett is usually, as an interviewer, especially at that time, was the one that was kind of the hippest one and the one that was like more, most likely to engage with somebody that was kind of doing that in the in the right way. But yeah, I, I know the way. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I know the one you're talking about. So what do we got here for us? What is this? this is oh, the, this is the uh, well. This is a map of the set uh, okay. that kind of shows you steps of of how um, they're walking through the apartment and how the camera is following. And of, of course, you can see here that the walls are detachable, but also, I mean, the camera goes right through the the doors here um i don't know i just kind of found it cool yeah i love this schematic here because i mean for one thing it shows you where all the challenges were uh you know those cameras were about twice the size and you know they're on these giant rigs that were about at least twice the size probably more like three times the size of those doorways so they had to have them uh on sliding rails that uh oh boy oh boy you better make sure that uh everything lines up perfectly what's missing from this of course is the bedrooms uh at one point um there, there's there's actually a book, the, the novelization, uh, one of the editions of the novelization of Rope has a map on the back cover that shows the bedroom. And it shows that there is one bedroom for both of these guys who live together. So it's one additional little touch, uh, one additional little hint that um, uh, that 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 these two guys uh, share something uh, more intimate than might be let on. Um, How many and he has a line, in fact, one of the characters has a line. He says something like, she, the one asks, where's the phone? He says, it's in the bedroom. Uh, once again, just a tiniest little hint that there's only one bedroom. Hmm, what does that mean? Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. Oh, these good friends only have one bedroom, huh? Okay, <laughs> and they were roommates. Yeah, mm-hmm. very, very And, and he seems, he seems uh, kind of like he has no real sexual interest in the uh, woman. He, I mean, he has he has sexual interest in fucking with her, right? Like he seems yeah. to get off on fucking a power with play, basically. But yeah, I mean, there's no like uh, the entire time. It's like it's like almost like he's uh, some kind of transcendent figure, and she's you know their their short relationship or whatever. It was just kind of like this blip of like this person above her uh, in some way that she's like trying to figure out still, and he's uh, like unable to figure him out because he's literally just a. I mean, well, number one, he's he's a gay man, but number two, that you know, it was just fucking with her. Like, uh, both of those things, I think, is are not something that you you would necessarily figure out if you were you know, like in in the relationship with her at the time. Um, it seems like 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 the question, like, oh, Brandon at somebody's feet, which I mean, also has like the secondary um, connotation to it uh, with the subtext, but like, right. oh, Brandon at someone's feet, I have to meet this man. Like, there's something almost. Um, I don't know. There's there's something mercurial about him. I think that she's still trying to figure out, or she's still trying to uh, ponder. I do wonder if um, a subtext that was intended by uh, Arthur Lawrence was that um, you know they kill this guy and they say oh because he's he's uh, inferior, he's not as smart, whatever. Um, if there might also be some 
uh, less highfalutin jealousy going on there that Brandon is annoyed that their friend David is marrying a woman and uh, right. considers that a betrayal. I, I don't pure, know. Pure you know. cattiness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never underestimate the power of pure cattiness. Correct. Yeah. yeah. It just might be resentful that uh, David is playing the game of, um, well, you know, we're of course, we're all gay men, but I'm going to try to play, a, you know, I'm going to follow the rules and marry yeah. a woman and, get, you know, enter this lavender marriage because, I, frankly, I think the woman comes off as... Um, sexually interesting as well and it wouldn't surprise me if she had a girlfriend somewhere but and the, i'm extending my headcanon far beyond what is on this what is in the sure, text sure. well she's anyway. definitely uh independent right like to, yeah. to a point that um like it's interesting that she's also trying to rush into marrying one of these guys mm -hmm. uh at some point or getting into feeling something for one of these guys when um you know she seems to have a career as well and she seems to have her own life and just be like another one of these interesting characters among an interesting cast of characters um more than someone who actually seems like you know uh the helpless character in the you know the hitchcock film that's like the mary sue kind of person right like she herself is another one of these interesting um people kind of flitting in and out of a uh of, of the scene i mean not that well hitchcock always has one like very very interesting woman i think and then a lot of times he has one kind of like mary sue kind of woman in the background um, yeah. just like one is complicated and one is like very simple and Hitchcock loves to do that. I, I would, I certainly, I wouldn't describe her as helpless. Yeah. I, here's a, here's a question. And I don't know if there is a definitive answer is rope noir. Gosh, I wouldn't think that it is. I don't think I would put in that. I mean, I could certainly hear an argument. Um, the style of the dialogue, the, yeah, you know, visual aesthetic of it. There's some blinking neon, but beyond that, uh, <laughs> and a couple of really right, nice right. fedoras. But the, you know, other than that, I, I don't think so. I, I can see an argument that it's like neo noir in some ways. Like it takes yeah. those elements of noir out of you know some of them, like the mystery uh, element of it, and kind of Jimmy Stewart acting the part of like the classic detective. But it isn't a noir film, and like the you know it doesn't check all the boxes although i don't Double think it's pseudo noir yeah. in a way or proto noir uh but I, yeah, I don't know if filmmakers really even started thinking in those exact terms until they, they weren't they were. yeah it, until it, the it, this, this is, this is an after the fact thing it's just funny because it goes back to our whole winter noir month of like what did and did not constitute yeah. noir what is neo-noir and and just sort of like and i realized that like as as many of those films i've seen how little i actually knew about the nomenclature of all of it like the the what i call like the record store bin aspect of it <laughs> where it goes you know uh and, and how little i care really heated as well. about it some people are really heated trying to come up with a definition of what oh, isn't yes. isn't noir and it ends up with like some very catty uh film academic fight i was gonna say that's back when twitter was fun yes i remember yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i just you know i don't think that it has quite the the darkness or the cynicism to to yeah. really qualify no I, I i would agree with you on that i think that's uh it's notable i i think that it's it's amazing more that, like, <laughs> more sure, yeah. Uh, think of, like, um, what, Compulsion comes out, like, what, about 10 years later, right? Uh, that's that's got to be, like, uh, the, the the with Orson Welles and all that. that that's, like, um, close in tone, but a very different kind of film. But that's kind of the, uh, um, well, isn't that isn't that based off of the actual uh, story? That I don't, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm not going to be any help here. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, it's it's um, it's okay. Compulsion it's was uh, compulsion was nineteen fifty nine. Okay, so I was I was that was close. I was 
Um, uh, Eleven years, fine. We were there's been her. there's there's been like <laughs> there's been multiple adaptations, kind of uh, of this or of the of the play version of this, not of this the Hitchcock version yeah. of it. Well, it's a different. It's a very different kind of uh, yeah. It's a very different kind of work as well. I was also just looking at other j- just for context, thinking about other movies that came out this year. So first of all, the Red Shoes came out the same year, which is interesting. The um, which is a, a also a very different kind of film. But I always have like I'm always curious as to like where you know when it existed where hollywood was at the time and the olivier hamlet is what won best picture this year which which is interesting and treasure of the sierra madre was uh nominated and houston ran for uh won for best director but like that's kind of where things were at so this is like kind of even more crazy and daring if you think about it yeah and and no shade given to uh to that hamlet which is perfectly fine and certainly not treasure of the sierra madre which i love but th- i mean that's like you know, this is this is like an A twenty four picture by comparison uh, to like to those films, right? I mean, it's 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 wild. I think that's a really good comparison. Yeah, we're still very much in the era, you know, the golden age, the studio system that is, it's about to start breaking down, but hasn't yet. Um, right. So you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of Hollywood's being run by giants uh, at this point, and for Hitch to make such a make such a big risk uh, is is pretty bold. It's. Like at this point, also you had to like actually loan actors out, right? Like Farley Granger had to be loaned out by Samuel Goldwyn to uh, appear right. in this at all. So like it's kind of yeah, it's like breaking the constraints of this um, this Hollywood system in so many different ways, right? Like you could see the the chains kind of starting to come off of it because uh, every creative force or any, anyone anyone that uh, was comfortable enough with their creative force to want to transcend the Hollywood studio system and not just be another you know. Uh, film director among film directors kind of had to do something bold and actors too, because they're just kind of getting loaned out at this point. Yeah. I, this was a big frustration for Farley because he was just being put in the worst possible pictures and the worst possible roles. And um, it was right after this that he went to, um, I mean, it was in part because of uh, Arthur Lawrence, who was a mostly a New York playwright. Um, so following rope uh, Farley starts paying a lot more attention to Broadway and realizes that's where he needs to be. Uh, so we get a few more pictures out of him, uh, you know, strange on the train notably, but, uh, yeah. then he gets traded and I don't know exactly the legality of this, but at one point, um, I think this is probably around 53, 54, maybe, um, Selznick and Harry Cohn who ran Columbia, um, were playing poker and I believe it was poker and Selznick bets Farley Granger's contract, uh, to, um, to Harry Cohn loses loses Farley's contract in a, in a poker game. Uh, and then Farley's expected to just work for, uh, for Columbia after that. Um, wow. And that, that was the final straw for him. He, he bought himself. He bought his, his contract out, uh, penniless, uh, after that for a long time, that, but, uh, that's actually how we got Andy it. on this show. We yeah. bet on him. <laughs> hey, always, uh, always bet on me. Yeah. I mean, it feels almost like slave, slave conditions right like in some ways like well but that's you, how the studio system was then. yeah, yeah it's like if you're under contract you're basically under conscription <laughs> oh yeah there were a couple guys who were really they called the shots and they could be as unpleasant as they wanted and they they yeah. sure were <laughs> they, and they chose well, i mean we kind of saw some of that barton fink whenever we watched that oh yeah 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 i mean that's kind of parodying a, a similar uh well by the end of it a similar dynamic uh this is the dick cavett uh hitchcock oh sweet awesome. thing I, yeah, I, I I didn't read that he was um, uncomfortable. Like, 
the it just seems like Dick Cabot. But now that like now that you've said that, I feel like the body language makes more sense uh, in this. Well, are there films you wouldn't do over again? Um, some people have been very hurt to find when Rope was their favorite picture, and that 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 body in the trunk and the young men mm-hmm. giving a dinner party with the body in the trunk and all that 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 appealed to so many people uh, as a mystery, as as a yeah. frightening film. Um, and they're disappointed to hear that you wouldn't do it the way you did it if you had it to do it again. Oh, yes, I would. Yes, it's, uh, that'll be shown on TV very soon. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it hasn't been shown as yet. You did the astounding thing of doing the movie in one in Well, that was because it was a theater piece. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to get some movement yeah. into what is really a theater piece. Yeah. So we followed the actors all around and... It was a prodigious job of production because walls had to slide away to let the camera go through mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. I remember the opening shot, we had this set and it was a sort of a penthouse room and we built a great big panorama of New York in miniature form, not just a painted back. Mm-hmm. And then we had a dining room and a kitchen I remember the opening scene took 750 feet without a cut, starting with the murder of the boy, following the two through into the dining room, into the kitchen, and you hold your breath right the way through for fear something may go wrong. You're the director. And they got some champagne and brought it back. And as the camera came back, I said, my God, thank goodness this shot's over. And as we panned round, there's an electrician standing there, <laughs> right in the window. Oh, and you couldn't rewrite the film to allow no, for that. Start all over again. I guess that's why they said you were crazy to try it, because what, what the average take in a film is how many seconds or oh, how many feet? Oh, it could be a half a minute, a minute, and two did, minutes. You did 20-minute takes, ten, I believe. Ten, ten or eleven-minute takes. Ten or eleven, mm. which is unheard of until you did it. Uh, I guess I'm fascinated with those technical things and how you did them. There was you mm. told Truffaut a story about the glass of milk in, um, in suspicion. In suspicion, yes. Cary Grant mm. is suspected of, be, of being a murderer, mm-hmm. and there's a very high shot of a hallway, and he's bringing her what you, the audience, know to be the fatal glass of milk, and he brings it all the way up, and it comes round the circular staircase until it comes right into the camera. Well, so that that glass of milk stood out very clearly, I put a little lamp inside the milk. A little light bulb? Yes, with a little battery. So the milk glowed all the way up. <laughs> That's such a British, sort of enhancing the British thing to put a Didn't you once try almost persuade Garbo to come out of retirement for a film? No, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> no, I couldn't persuade myself to do that. But did you try once? No, never, no. I, th- I thought there was some talk that she might have played in one of your films. At one no, the only trouble is, you know, obviously with Garbo, you couldn't find a subject where mm-hmm. she could be alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good on him, man. That was a solid burn. That's good. <laughs> Gonna go down I, this weird Garbo alley? Sure, yeah. I love I love the, like, he's like, I put it inside a glass of milk. And it's like... The fatal dude, milk. That's the most British thing I've ever heard. 
Yeah, you know, I actually used to put lights in my kids' drinks to make them uh, drink it. So, you know, I'm glad. <laughs> I, I'm glad yeah. uh, I got that from Hitchcock. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. So we didn't even talk about the neon sign, which which uh, anyone saw Edgar Wright's last night in Soho. Clearly, he saw this too because uh, I mean, it's almost like an homage, right? That he's got the like the blinking, uh, <laughs> the, the the blinking neon sign that's in there, and, and has become a like something of a i guess neo-noir cliche uh but it's present here and it's probably why the electrician was there frankly <laughs> but but unfortunately also in shot <laughs> he's there, to, he's there to, i'm I, i'm there to fix the light and they're like get out of here electrician <laughs> yeah. yeah that blinking neon was uh quite a hassle for them to get it to time properly they actually used uh components from a uh, from an airplane, from a bomber. Um, I forget exactly why this was necessary, but the electronics well, are, they, they gutted a, um, the switch that is used to drop bombs from an airplane uh, <laughs> is what is what m governs the, the timing of that blinking neon light. Wow, all this to make it malfunction the way they wanted it to malfunction. Astounding. Because they didn't have a radio shack to go to. I right. guess not. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, kids today know the struggle, but. Uh, uh, kids today don't even know what radio shack is. Correct. But yeah. Neither the kids back then. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the wild stuff. Um, I think that the, it's interesting that like, this is definitely, there, there's a lack of like clear cut protagonist here, right? Like everyone's kind of like m messed up in their own ways. That not the least of which is you got an influential man that's sort of surprised that his literal words were taken seriously by, by his students and like a gas. It's like, you said it, man. You said these things, right? <laughs> I would agree that it is hard to find a character that you're really rooting strongly for, which is surprising because in a lot of Hitchcock films, you can find a way to root for the antagonist, not the antagonist, but you can find a way to root for the bad guy, somebody right. who did something wrong. Um, yeah, and I said, like you know, the protogenitor of the antihero uh, in, in a lot of cases, yeah. you know, there's just it's very difficult to find much sympathy with either of those characters because Brandon is so um, diabolical and un abrasive and unpleasant, I would say. And yes. um, and uh, Farley Granger's character, is I can't believe I forgot his name. Brandon and uh, the other guy is so whimpering and and weak that it's uh, it's it's hard to want to side with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Philip. Philip. Thank um, you. Yeah, yeah, it, it's fine. It, well, his name is as forgettable as as, as anything in the, in the world, right? It's like a very very placeholder name. But yeah, it's. But by the same token, you're kind of like along with them, and and it's I I can only uh, for modern constructs I can only put it aside to like a Breaking Bad thing where you're just like or Sopranos where you're like rooting for them not to get caught, and you're like, well, wait a second, they just murdered someone. They maybe they should get caught. <laughs> And this is kind of like, and one of them is like openly flaunting it and basically turning into like some like weird like head game. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's depending on your moral compass. As an allegory, it's fantastic. But if it was like a real life event, obviously totally horrifying. Like, oh, we ate, you know, we had a uh, canapes off of, the, <laughs> off of a chest that had a human body in it. Oh, yeah. NBD, average Tuesday. Okay. Yeah. Well, and it's like the more that they want to get caught almost, the more like you don't want them to get caught, right? Like, right. The more that they they boldly like, oh, I can get away with this. I could totally do this. It's like the more yeah. you personally are like, well, now that you really want to get caught, I don't know if I want. I don't feel like this is, uh, you know, I, I don't <laughs> like. I don't think you know that you want to get caught, but you're I don't think you've thought about this enough. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's pretty notable. Uh, you want to uh, dive into one-liners and? Yeah. 
All right, cool. So, uh, of course, Letterboxd, Matt, I will address this to you as your guest, is a, is a social media site for film lovers to talk at with and to each other about the films that they love, maybe the films that they didn't love, <clears throat> the films that they had uh, weird, exquisite gay thirsting over. And, of course, uh, this is an open source democracy. Everyone can say they're saying, no, it's the Siskels and Eberts of the world. And uh, this is best expressed succinctly for the purposes of this bit where we look at all of the reviews in uh, this truncated form and react to them on screen before we uh, close out the show. So these are the letterbox one-liners for Rope. Let's roll them. Fellas, is it gay to murder your friend just to impress your prep school housemaster? Apparently. <laughs> what kind of country is this when, you know, there's a sexuality assigned to <laughs> murdering your friend to impress your house, your prep school housemaster? <laughs> Two gay guys teach an autistic guy not to be a eugenicist. <laughs> <laughs> that one got me. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty good. <laughs> Philip is not the friend to take LSD with. Yo, that is facts. No. That is, yeah, he'd be freaking out. Yeah. None of them are, to be way. honest. I, I don't know. Maybe a, the girl. She seems cool. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they would all be bad trips in various ways. Actually, I I, I feel like even the, the, the sister that's like, uh, you know, the, the British lady or whatever. Yeah. I feel like she'd be a trip. She couldn't be on acid, too, though. You know what I mean? Like, you'd have to be on acid talking to her. And she'd be like, I saw the something the other day. Like, yeah, it might make an easier conversation, actually. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Say. Especially if you could see it. <laughs> <laughs> you're the only one that knows what movie she's talking about because you're on acid. <laughs> Rest in peace, Brandon Shaw. You would have loved Joker 2019. <laughs> that is that is a movie for him. It is. It yeah. absolutely is. You think murdering your your uh your 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 college or your high school classmate is funny? And he's like, I do, and I'm tired of pretending that it's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would totally work. Something about watching a self-centered, manipulative guy and his anxious, alcoholic boyfriend host a murderous dinner party, then arguing over strangling a chicken is so very therapeutic to me for some reason. <laughs> no stars, though, on that one, huh? Yeah, this is just just a just a log. No stars. Although they did have, they, they obviously like to do a custom poster. That's a cool poster. And, and, and they liked the movie. Yeah, yeah. Some people don't. I don't know. Some people don't feel good with the star designation. And some people just do stars, which I, I get if you're keeping a list or something. But like, you know, yeah. like it, it feels like it defeats the purpose of the app. Yeah. I don't know. I think sometimes like like uh, st uh, the heart is like like, you know, I really like to watch this movie. Yeah, it's only a three star movie, but but I really like to watch it. You like, enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. I get yeah. It. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock really said, I support gay rights, but I also support gay wrongs. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> These gays knew it was over when the uninvited wine aunt who does horoscope showed up. <laughs> <laughs> that seems great though. Like the, the oh, double awesome. the double talk of the uh the hands and he's like she's like, You'll be notorious for your hands and he's like Yeah. Ah my hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a high guy looking at his hands for the first time. <laughs> right, right. As Avery mentioned LSD. Mm -hmm. Can attest that every philosophy class has two kids that worship Nietzsche for only the weird reasons. <laughs> you know, we're working on uh, give them an argument. I think Forrest and I can both uh, agree to that uh, to that statement. Yeah. There you go. There you go. The original be gay do crime. True. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. I think there's a Western that came out before this, but but right. sure. Was it the one with Montgomery Cliff that gets referenced by Matt in this video? <laughs> oh, uh, I think that's uh, is it Red Rocks. Yeah. It's Red something. I don't know. I know it's, it's, it's there's there's one with a uh, uh, where they have like Billy the Kid and this other um, uh, and Doc Holliday. No, yeah, yeah, Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday are like going around doing crimes together and they, they basically spend the entire film arguing who's going to go off with the girl and who's going to keep the horse. And, and it's like this weird, like, <laughs> All right. yeah, see, I get the girl, you keep the horse. And, and they get like the twinkiest twink to play Billy the kid. <laughs> All right. Like, yeah, at, it is, at the end um, at the end of the, the girl or horse argument, you're just like, we could just save so much time by just going off with each other. And then the movie's done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give the horse to the lady. And, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> we only ever see the S on that huge blinking neon sign outside, but I'm sure the rest of it reads U B T E X T. That's some text. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Very subtle. Very, very alliterative. Those not, are letterbox. Uh, not much. Not much sub about that subtext. No, no, no. <laughs> These are the letterbox one-liners for rope. Please, 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 please follow the show. That is, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Rupert's YouTube channel, Philosophy of a Murder. At Movie Night Extra, representing the show and all the wonderful stuff that we uh, cover here. I, of course, am Kona Neutron, The Art of Murder, covering all the uh, highbrow, midbrow, the um, the good populist fair. Almost done with the Criterion Challenge, but you can still follow me along for the last four that I got. So I'm killing this one this year. Uh, J. Andrew, Murder Art Critic World, doesn't keep the rope in the kitchen draw, but he is watching the weirdest stuff, so you don't have to. Or maybe so you can. You have a prop. I appreciate that you had a prop. Yes, That's yes I, I've I've been waiting to to pull this out. I keep it in my uh, <laughs> a drawer of like um, uh, art supplies and, and uh, various things I've used to make art with. So you know, Matt, did you realize you were being on stream with a prop comic tonight? I didn't realize. <laughs> Quite an honor. <laughs> he's in front of the he's in front of the comedy store wall too. Like... <laughs> exactly. Sometimes tell us about airline food next. Uh, Matt, I, I, are you on? Are you a letterbox user? It's not. This isn't like peer pressure. I just I'm going to call you. Out, I'm so. afraid not. No, I. Okay. Uh, <laughs> for my my letterbox reviews are, are my videos, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say you got to have like a just like a few of our friends. You've you've got a better outlet for that. <laughs> uh, Jay in the world, takes with plugs. Why don't, why don't you? All right, you're watching us on YouTube, so please do those YouTube things. Like, comment, subscribe, hit that bell. And of course, because we're all slaves to the algorithm, watch the video to the end, please. You get to hear a great Conan Neutron song, and that allows us to be discovered by other movie fans. Uh, if we're, we're over on uh, Twitch as well, and do the Twitch things, throw us a sub. If you happen to have a Amazon Prime account, you can subscribe for free. doesn't cost you anything, but really helps out the channel. Uh, thank you for, for doing any or all of that stuff. Um, you can find us on social media. We're on um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Blue Sky. Um, you know, find us there, follow us, and uh, say hi. We, 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 we'll answer you. Um, probably, I imagine. <laughs> Why did you undercut it? You're, that was fine. You don't was, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I don't answer people saying hi to me. All right. And then Let I the panic. You're too busy yes. getting your prop for the next bit ready. I, guess. I, know, I know. Like, like you know, I had to dig through a drawer and find this. It's a thing. This is high. But it wasn't in like, the kitchen. You want to say hi to me on a blue sky? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Say hi to me on blue sky. That's fine. That's fine. I'll let you on blue sky. All right. I, thank you. I'm for, glad you gave them permission. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for deigning to to let people say hi to you on blue sky. I'm so I'm so glad to hear that. 
But uh, we also have a Patreon. Uh, with the Patreon, you get access to things like our after parties, which uh, forever, which is nice. Um, and I think we're planning on doing one tonight. Was that, sure. uh, was that the talk or? I don't remember. I was on air whenever you guys were having that conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, um, mean, I, I set one up. It's up to you guys if you want to do it. Yeah. But the, but the cards but Matt, if you, if, you, uh, if you can join us, uh, if you'd like to join us, uh, we, we, that's where we kind of um, let our hair down and talk about more than More stuff. than the show. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you thought this was way too on topic, it's, it's, this will solve that problem for you. <laughs> yeah, all that, we dispense with formalities, finally. Yes, finally, <laughs> at last. At last, I'm free to speak of what I want to speak about. <laughs> but you but can get them if you join the Patreon. What's next, Andy? Yes, you. You're you're next. Okay, in fact, great. in fact, I did want to plug your album Art of Murder since that's uh, kind of apropos to this. Point. I inadvertently I did so this. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot that's where I got the title for the second Code of Neutron, the Secret Friends record is is from is from Rope, and it's it's kind of like a small line, but. I just had that bouncing around my head apparently for like 20 years and then uh, pulled that out of nowhere. <laughs> for the record, it's about Hannibal Lecter and the, the world around him. Like, it has nothing to do with rope, but I just like that phrase, the art of murder. I thought that was cool. So, well, 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 well Conan, I, I think your, 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 your second album, I, I, something, something's about it. Uh... <laughs> exactly. But, but you can find that and his new one that just dropped. Uh, Bam! Yeah. Don't prom. Right there. Yes. It's cool. Matt, you looked up, and it kind of looked like you were looking up at the van when you did. <laughs> that was good typing. He's yeah. like, ah, oh, I'm about to get hit by a van. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, there's uh, The vinyl is uh, shipping uh, next week, I think, for pre-orders. And if um, you can still get it. Yes. yes. Neutron Neutronfriends.bandcamp.com. Yeah, thanks. Yes. yes. There it is. Yes. <laughs> I think you're busy and, readying your next prop, so I was just going to do it for you. Okay, no problem. No, I was actually dropping my iPad, so, so you know, um, I wouldn't have in front of me Protonic Reversal, and I didn't Whoa, write down an who, who, was, uh, who was on it this week. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, John Basley of uh, Baroness is uh, coming on this week. So, uh, oh, that is, exciting. Should, should be a good one. They have a new record. So if you're into that band, then you should listen to Protonic Reversal this week, which is the name of my show that is the background of, of behind me. And there's Excellent. a Patreon for that, too. Dollar a month. Early access. Let's keep it moving. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you got tour dates. <laughs> I do have tour dates, yes. Uh, West Coast tour. Uh, there's the, there's some art from that. Uh, Tempe, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Sacramento, Reno, Eugene, Portland, Bellingham, Seattle, Bellingham Exit, and Rat City Recon in Seattle. Uh, all, those, all those dates with Long. So. If any of our West Coast fans want to hang out and probably pitch themselves to be on the show, if it's... yeah, Matt, if you wanted to, I think that's uh, there's some shows near you. Yeah, yes, indeed, Rat City, uh, right up here next to Seattle. Excellent. So, is so that you live? You're a Seattle guy, Matt. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. That's one of my favorite cities. It's too bad it's completely unaffordable to live in anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Christina's not here, but uh, please, uh, you know, stop by her Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash Um, You know, throw her a few bucks. Uh, she'd greatly appreciate that. And of course, Matt, our guest, uh, has a phenomenal YouTube channel. Um, I'm always like saying to my He's wife. He's always like, talking about it. it. It really gets annoying sometimes, Matt. But he is yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm always like saying stuff to my wife like, hey, did you know Jim Neighbors is gay? And she's like, yes. Yes, I did. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> 
Um, you, got, you got a powerful friend in Andy World. But Wonderful. Yeah, uh, I appreciate it. And, and I'm always like stopping it to tell her something that, that happened, you know, like just happened in the uh, the episode. <laughs> reporting on what you're watching on YouTube. Wonderful. Right? Yeah, guess no. who, you, know, you never know. Guess who was gay in this episode? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But but uh, no, I, I there, quite enjoy. There he is it. now. Actually, they, they worked out. <laughs> uh, but but so I encourage everybody to go check it out, subscribe, and of course uh, buy buy your new book. Um, Hi, honey, I'm homo. Yes, indeed, it's the history of queer characters on American sitcoms from Bewitched all the way up to Modern Family. We got the Golden Girls, we got Friends, we got Soap. A uh, million uh, cheers. Uh, you know, it's basically the behind the scenes story of how uh, queer characters wound up uh, sneaking subversive jokes in front of American audiences and how that changed the world. That's awesome. That sounds like a heady topic. Yeah, well, it's a lot of fun, too. I was able to fit in a lot of like my favorite sitcom jokes, my favorite sitcom episodes. Uh, talk about, uh, you know, basically the making of and uh, also the just, you know, the pleasure of sitting down to spend time with, um, you know, you're good. You're good. What feel like your good friends from sitcoms. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of fascinating how much like sitcoms have been a force for like social progress. Uh, yeah. like, like considering, you know, like I feel like a lot of like TV critics and stuff will, will bitch about like the format of sitcoms not changing as much as they wish it did over time. And it's like, yeah, but like some of our biggest moments in like history have been reinforced by sitcoms. Like, yeah, it's the, yeah, no, it's it's but it was considered a low art form for many years. Right. Like it wasn't until the, the rise of prestige, prestige television that people like even gave like their due to like some quite brilliant shows. Yeah, I would say that's true. Uh, the television has always been because it's, um, I think, more accessible relatively, uh, perhaps not as valued as cinema. But uh, and I used to be a real snob about it, too, where I was like, oh, well, film film is artistic, but television yeah. is just a product. But uh, that really, I think, uh, is is not the case. Uh, as I learned, the more that I learned about uh, the folks who made these shows and the lengths to which they went um, to get stuff on the air, sometimes stuff that they really weren't supposed to. Um, it's just uh, it's it just fascinating, fascinating world. Norman Lear is kind of the uh, like one of the the greats in that sense, uh, you know, bring, like bringing actual politics to the table in like a thirty minute like form that people could actually like ingest in a way and like uh, process in a way. I think that they couldn't like through cinema or something like that. And it's like I don't know, like the, the guy was a powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and there's a lot of cross-pollination for creative things, too. I mean, a lot of people don't know Lucille Ball was a major driving force to Star Trek getting on air in the first mm -hmm. place, which is Desi crazy. Lou. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the thing that makes television seem a little disposable, which is that basically everybody can watch it and every, it's, it's cheaper to make, uh, is yeah. also what makes it awfully powerful because it can move fast. It can uh, take take more risks. Um, and, uh, yeah, everybody everybody has some connection to a television show, you know, it, it may feel like a very solitary thing to be sitting there watching a show by yourself, but you know that there are millions of people out there watching the same thing that you are. Yeah. Um, so, so everyone should get your book so they can read all about it. Get my book. Hi, honey, I'm homo available now. <laughs> Gaysitcoms.com. Right. Uh, so do you have any final thoughts on this, uh, on this movie? Uh, boy, oh boy. I love this film. I think it is, uh, unjustifiably overlooked often. I think it makes a great double feature with Farley Granger's, uh, second collaboration with Hitchcock, uh, Strangers on a Train. Uh, I think, uh, yeah. watch Rope, watch Strangers on a Train together. Uh, you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot more of that. The, it, he puts the sub in subtext. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Andy, do you have any final thoughts? 
Yeah, uh, I will. I got to say, like the colors, which we, we barely touched on in this movie. Um, uh, whoever did the costumes in the colors and plus the uh, I guess it's Christmas sexual lighting that was flashing in the apartment. Um, it was red and green. <laughs> um, but but uh, <laughs> the um, uh, but but the, the the colors are actually very interesting. And uh, I, I kind of wish I spent more time kind of analyzing it, but that, the, the beautiful red dress that she has on, like like I just I loved that color red and how it how the 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 lights in the film it was uh, catching the uh the colors on it and the 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 suits too just just the 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 tone of blue that they used were just um they showed up on camera really well um it's, i don't know if it's there's kind any... of reminiscent of uh stage lighting too right like yeah stage lighting being a different force i think than cinema lighting usually yeah but, but like I, I don't think it's like a uh you know like a kurosawa ran where where like you know the colors have like this great deeper meaning or, or anything yeah. to that but it's just uh you know it's a little bit more like um you know what looks good on film like like how um uh suzuki approached um uh tokyo drifter or even like something came out the same year the red shoes like that's that's a, like a master class in the usage of color as well but like there wasn't yeah that's it, it's funny the thoughtfulness of that is is through a modern lens like we don't often know exactly what was going on at that time but it, it is absolutely notable when when it shows especially for something where like you know it's kind of beige there's a lot of beige and you know earth tones if anybody was going to talk shit about it, though, it would be Arthur Lawrence. He'd be like, "That's a fact." That's a he fact. turned on the red and the green, and I, I thought that it should have been blue, but it was red and green, and I wasn't into that. And but Conan, you got final thoughts? I do. Uh, I think there's well crafted, and then there's rope, which is uh, technically magnificent. It's a meticulous. It's surreptitious, uh, as mentioned before. Without a rope, there wouldn't be a rear window. No psycho. No vertigo. No north by northwest. And it's a consistently compelling murder mystery where the exact details are given to you at the very beginning, and the suspensive scene if they get discovered. Uh, I don't think it's Hitchcock's best, but it might be his most underrated. And while the technical marvel of it is certainly exquisite, it's a landmark of coded gay cinema that shines as well. And uh, yeah, great to discuss it and uh, had a great time talking to you, Matt. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Always happy to talk about, uh, about Rope and Hitchcock in general. All right. Nice. Thanks so much for coming on.